Hey everybody, it's Doug Bursch and you're listening to The Fairly Spiritual Show. Hello there, boys and girls! It's the first show of the year! Ha <laughs> ha! That's terrible. That's a terrible Mickey. Ho-ho! It's Born Again Mickey! <laughs> this is the worst beginning ever. Oh, is this the worst beginning for you? How's the year starting out? It's January 3rd, 2018. You fail or succeed at those resolutions? Let's look at how to succeed in the coming year. Fairly Spiritual, coming up. They say that I cannot do what you've called me to. It is not possible, unattainable. I will never see it through, but you've spoken by your dreams with you ah so good to spend time with you you know i think one of my goals in life or one of my dreams in life would be to be sued by disney for some sort of copyright infringement uh maybe for doing born again mickey <laughs> hello boys and girls oh listen to born again mickey uh, surrender your life to christ ah uh, yeah, I know. I understand. It's a terrible Mickey impersonation, but uh, that's how I feel coming out of the holidays here. Yeah, I'm a little groggy. The new year has started. It, it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm trying to get back into the swing of things, but I, I'm not completely refreshed. I had a good break, but let's be honest. I don't know if uh, the beginning of the year is the best time to set resolutions. I don't know if that's when you got your, your strength. I don't know when your strength is at full form. You know, I don't know if I'm at 100% or 110%. It's kind of a crazy idea that after you've carved yourself out, like literally carbohydrated at a level that's not appropriate for days and days through Christmas and even the New Year's, then you decide to embrace resolutions that require your brain to work or your body to work. So on this show here, it's a safe zone. We're just going to gradually get into it. And in fact, uh, this is not going to be a podcast where we just put a heavy load on you of a bunch of things you need to do. But I thought it would be good to look at how do we kind of assess our life uh, in a way that's constructive. Uh, if I had you raise your hand, and please do raise your hand, this is a participatory uh, show. Uh, how many of you do resolutions? Raise your hand. Now, this is offensive in two ways. Well, it's offensive in one way. Those of you who didn't raise your hand, I said it was participatory and you're not raising your hand, so that's offensive. It's also weird in another way that some of you are raising your hand, and that's a little troubling. So either way, it's that question is kind of bothersome. But how many of you uh, participate in resolutions? And some of you, your resolution is not to respond to podcasts by raising your hand. But anyway, so, okay, raise your hand if you uh, participate in resolutions. Uh, it seems to be one or the other. You either do it or you don't at all. You're like, I don't do that. Some of you have a theology of why it's wrong to participate in resolutions. I, I'm not here to judge you. 
It either works or it doesn't. By the way, I'm prob- I probably am here to judge you. We all judge each other. We try not to, but it just happens. But we, we know we're not supposed to, right? So resolutions for some people are great. It motivates you. You're going to be posting the pictures of how skinny you get, how many miles you've run. Praise God for you. We are excited with your resolutions. And hey, the resolution, I resolve to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. We can all resolve for that as well in this year. But for others, we did the resolution thing, and it just just becomes condemnation when we can't do it. Like like that one-year Bible reading plan, I give it to our church. I have it on my website. You can have a new one-year Bible reading plan. I put it out there for people who believe they can read through the Bible in a year. Uh, We have a new version at fairlyspiritual.org. But for me personally, if I resolve to read the Bible through, to go through that whole plan, I will fail. It's basically just an activity and exercise and leading me into condemnation. So I don't want to get into resolutions, but I do want to look at this. How do we assess our life? And the Bible talks a lot about assessment, or at least the Bible is written in a way that it seems like God wants us to assess our life, even through the calendar, as a part of our existence. In the Old Testament, you see the way life is set up, that assessment is a good thing. Even the concept of Sabbath, where, you know, on a weekly basis, we're supposed to look at what's important in life. You know, one-seventh of existence, God does the work. We're not supposed to do the work. We're supposed to focus in on the things of God. We see the holy calendars, the times of going to the temple, the, the, the sin offerings. We're supposed to focus in on God's grace and our sins and, and, and forgiveness and the righteousness of God that it seems like from the beginning, God understood that humans need to process things through time, through a calendar, through seasons, right? Even the concept of seasons helps us process things on a yearly basis, right? We process different things in the spring. In the spring, we think about new life. In the summer, uh, we think about not wanting to do anything. In the winter, we think about death and dying and moving away from the Seattle area. Maybe that's just me. But the reality is we think about things during the seasons. So, I want us just to look at ways that we can assess our life, but not in a legalistic way where we we make a bunch of rules and regulations that we're going to fail at. So these are ways that I can assess 2017. How did 2017 go? And how does 2018 go? Uh, First one I want to get at is uh, I I like uh, reading uh, the writings from this very interesting artist by the name of Thomas Hirshhorn. Now, if you've never heard of Thomas Hirshhorn, that's not a surprise. Whenever I talk about him, most people have not heard of him. He's an artist where if you looked up his stuff, and if you're not really into art, by the way, this sounds very erudite as I'm talking about it, but if you're not really into art, <clears throat> if you look at some of his installations, you'll go, that's not art, or what in the world is this? Because he makes really weird stuff. And in fact, one of the reasons I like Thomas Hirshhorn is a lot of the stuff I've looked at of his, the first thing I do when I see it is I'm like, I don't even know what this is. I don't even know what to think about. He has art installations called monuments where they, they're up for a few months or for a year. They're temporary. They're interactive with people, and then they disappear. And if you were to ask me to explain what it was, like if, if I didn't know it was art, I would think it was something else. I wouldn't know what it was, but I wouldn't call it art. And this is not me dismissing it. It's just that he works in a realm of ideas and expressions that were very foreign to me when I first 
uh, confronted Thomas Hirshhorn. Confronted, it sounds like I was attacking him, but when his work first confronted me, uh, well, I started studying him and reading some of his writings and actually listening to how he talks about art. And English is his second language, so it's also fun to hear how he talks about art in, in the second language in English. But he has these ideas and ways of talking about art that challenge me. And I love being challenged. I don't really enjoy listening to people who just can conform or confirm what I already know. I don't like reading a book where it's like, yeah, I love this book because it's everything I already agree with. And he'll say things. He's not a Christian. He's, he's not a believer. But he'll say things that get me thinking about life. And he has this really weird phrase. The first time I heard it, I was like, I don't, I don't have any idea what that means, but I'm interested. And here's the phrase. And this phrase has probably challenged me more than any phrase, you know, that's not scripture, than any phrase in the last, I don't know, five years of my life since I first heard it. And the phrase is this, energy, yes, quality, no. I'll say it again. Energy, yes, quality, no. Now, some of you are like, maybe I miss hearing that. I'll say it again. Energy, yes, quality, no. Now, when I first heard it, I'm like, I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? So I, I heard the phrase, and then he began to explain it, and I began to read what he meant by that phrase. Uh, Thomas Hirshhorn in the art world talks about this. What makes something have quality when it comes to a work of art? Just think about a work of art. What, what makes it have value? Well, we could use these things. Well, you know, it's beautiful and, and uh, something has value because it's beautiful and it's worthy. But let's think in really crass terms. Let's think in market terms. What makes something have quality or value? Well, ultimately, it's what people are willing to pay for it, right? In our capitalistic society. So art, what art has value or quality? Who decides the quality or the value of art in the art world? Well, here's some of the people who do. Rich people. Rich people decide what art has value because they're willing to pay for that art. No matter how pure the idea of the artist is, no, how, no matter how pure their inspiration is, if they can't sell their art or if their art is only sold for $5, uh, they're not going to survive. So what artists eventually become quality artists? The artist who can sell their works for $100, $1,000, right? $3,000, $4,000, $50,000, $60,000, $100,000. Now, when they're alive, those who can sell that work for that amount of money, they become the quality artists. So rich people influence what is quality. Well, some people say, well, well that's not true because some artists, they were poor when they were living, but later uh, their, their work was you know, sold for thousands of dollars. So let's see, say for the dead artist, who decides that their work is quality? Well, you'll say, well, it's the people. Well, it's not just the people. It's the critics and the curators and the museums. It's the people who put the, the pieces of work on the walls. It's the critics who say, that's good and that's bad, who write the good review or the bad review. It's the curator who says, we will hang your work in our prestigious gallery that only rich people come to on opening night. It's the curator who will say, we will put this price tag on it that says it has value. Now, I'm not trying to be cynical. I'm just telling you this is how the commerce works. We all know about people who created things that seem to be very valuable, 
but they were not recognized by the critics. They were not recognized by the rich people. They were not recognized by the museums. And during their life, what happened? The quality of their work was not recognized by anyone, and they died poor people, poor artists, starving artists. Yet there came a time when suddenly their work was seen as having quality. And why was it seen as having quality? Because the curator, the rich man, the museum gave it that monetary value. Well, that's very cynical, and that could be very depressing if you're an artist, right? So, so here's what Thomas Hirshhorn says. He says, you can't really judge artistic work based on quality because quality is subjective and quality, and this is my summary of him. He'd probably argue with me that I don't quite get it, but this is what I got out of it, that, that quality is subjective and quality is dependent upon people in positions of power. You can't judge it based on quality, but what you can judge is energy. Has someone given their best energy to a work? So he says, energy, yes. Quality, no. So I've seen him, and just little bits and pieces of this, where he assesses the works of people, not based on the quality of the work, but the energy. Now, I've taken that idea and I've applied it to the spiritual life. And it really has challenged me in what I'm doing as a pastor, as a person, as a father, in every area of my life. Now, I do believe there are certain spiritual qualities or there's a quality to our spiritual life, that the Bible has things that are right and wrong, that there are things that that have value and don't have value. But the reality is sometimes we argue about what has value and doesn't have value. Sometimes we argue about what is truly quality or not quality. Sometimes we're presenting things that we think have quality, but they're not received by others. You're doing things. You're, you're, you're laying down your life in your marriage. You're laying down your life in your parenting. You're laying down your life in your friendships. You're, you're expressing yourself in a way where others do not see the quality in it. Or even you yourself are questioning it. Like, I don't know if what I'm doing has value. And I'd like you for a second just to put that down. And, and yes, we do look at quality and value in our life. But just for a second, just say quality, no. I'm not going to assess my life by the quality or how people assess whether it is of quality. And I want to look at the energy part. Energy, yes. Am I giving my best energy to the purposes of God? See, this to me is a great way to be able to assess truly, am I truly living the values that I espouse? Because people can argue theologically all sorts of things. We can have all kinds of great points and opinions about what Christians should do and be. We can have titles. We can have degrees. We can have our spiritual works praised by others. We can be conferenced. We can write books. We can do all sorts of things where people can say, oh, that is of great quality. But the question I have for myself and the question I have for you is what about our energy? Do we give our best energy to the things of God? And and best energy, even in this sense, is there an integrity to the energy that we give? Is there a focused passion to how we treat the things of God? I think about how Paul talks about running the race 
for the kingdom of God. In Philippians 3, 12, you know, we, we kind of back away from his language in this. Some people do because it almost sounds like he's talking about earning your salvation. But he it's this big, in, in Philippians 3, it's, it's a lot of things he's talking about. I'm not going to get into all of it. But it seems clear to me that he's talking to Christians where he says, you know, if you don't give your best energy to the kingdom of God, if you don't truly strive and move forward with the conviction that Christ is your all in all, you're in danger. And people who've made Christianity or the pursuit of Christ or the serving of Christ just kind of a secondary thing and have just pursued this as just kind of a lazy endeavor, they've shipwrecked their faith. This is one of those passages that I think shows that our faith is not just secure in the sense of, well, you know, I just gave my life to Christ and it doesn't matter what I do. Because Paul seems to say, you know, if you're not striving and pushing forward and giving your best effort, you're in danger of shipwrecking your faith. So he says here in Philippians 3.12, he says, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in any way or if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Then in verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul seems to believe that there's a reality of our faith where we must push forward and strive in a sense where it's like a race to win the prize, that our best energy is given for the purpose of living for the purposes of God. Energy, yes. Quality, no. This helps me when I'm condemning myself. You know, I wrote a book uh, last year, The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor, and I would really like it if you'd pick it up. And it means a lot to me when any book is is purchased. I have a little bell next to me. I wonder if I can find it here. Just a second. I'm going to go away from the mic. I have a little bell here, and when anyone purchases the book, I ring it. In fact, there was a purchase yesterday and I didn't ring it. So there's my one ring. Actually, this morning there were two audiobooks. So there's the two. And I do it to remind myself that every per- that it matters, that every single book that goes out there, it matters greatly. But there's a reality that I can assess myself, you know, when I'll see some author giving away a thousand copies of their book or 10,000 copies and I can think like, man, you know, what do I do? My life. These things I'm doing, these are so, you know, I'm barely making an impact. When I see people where I've, I remember when I had a radio show, people would come on my show and I'd invest in their life and, 
and I do interviews and I promote their book. And then now that I don't have a radio show and I would see how they would not reciprocate and promote the things that I created. And I'd think I'm just a nobody and I get bitter and I can get disgruntled and, or I can just get whatever, you know, the quality of what I'm doing and people don't see the quality in it and, and just start dealing with all that. This helps me focus on my life. Energy, yes. Quality, no. Okay, I'm always going to work on quality, but I can I can look at this and say, hey, am I giving my best energy today instead of just wallowing in despair or in anxieties about things outside my control? Lord, what do you want me to do? Energy, yes. Quality, no. Another way to assess uh, this year, this coming year, is the issue of are you growing in relationship with God or are you growing in legalism? And I've talked a little bit about this in our podcast, and I want to talk about it now, is I think often we have a misunderstanding of legalism. Some people see legalism as an issue of having lots of rules, lots of regulations, and being very harsh. For Christians, they see legalism as, you know, basically, here's the stereotype, you know, they grew up kind of in a far-right, conservative Christian home, maybe the, the example would be it was very patriarchal, you know, kind of a complementarian, men are con- in control, women are subservient, uh, the men make the decision, the women stay at home, the, the men go to work, the women take care of the kids, the men, you know, it's very rule-based. It's not about necessarily communication as it is about uh, having the, uh, you know, the right structures, the right roles, the right rules. Uh, there's often an anti-society or a isolate from society. We're going to homeschool our kids. We're going to go to our own schools, our own Christian schools. Uh, the world's dangerous. We need to protect ourselves and isolate. That's an extreme version, but you might have been raised with lots of rules, lots of regulations. It, it's much more about all the things you do and don't do, right? You don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't chew, you don't go with the girls that do. Depending upon the generations, there were different rules, right? You don't go to the movie house. You, you, you don't do certain things. You only watch Christian TV. You only listen to Christian music. Maybe you could listen to some DC talk. Maybe. I guess you can listen to that rap. Those sorts of things. So they see that as a form of legalism. And then the issue of coming out of legalism for them is I no longer follow all those rules. But what I see is a new form of legalism. And I've talked about this, and it it kind of amazes me how people don't see this. They'll come out of that conservative legalism, and they'll abandon it. And what they'll basically do is embrace what I would see is a progressive legalism. That they just have a new set of rules. But now they have less rules. They used to have all these rules about what you do and you don't do. They used to have all these uh, expectations of what a Christian is or what a Christian isn't. And, they, and they've said those things are wrong. Even though they'll have rules about um, you know, what the Scripture is and authority of Scripture... They just had lots of rules, and they basically abandoned those rules. I don't need to go to church anymore. I don't need to believe these things anymore. And by the way, that is a rule, a rule that says I do need to and I don't need to. Those are both forms of legalism, right? Here's a law. You do need to do this. Here's another law. You don't need to do this. Those are both legalistic propositions. 
And so what you find in people who've been raised, some people who've been raised in legalist environments, they used to have a bunch of rules. And now they've either embraced all those rules and carried them on to the next generation, or they've abandoned all those rules. They don't go to church anymore. Now they drink, and they used to not drink. Now, uh, you know, they used to feel like they had to pray all the time. Now they don't have to pray all the time. They used to believe a bunch of things in Scripture. Now they just believe a few things. Perfect example would be this is, you know, they'll say something like, the whole Scripture can be summed up in this, love wins. That's a law, by the way. Saying love wins sounds nice. That's just a law. To, to sum up the Scripture as a statement is, by definition, a law. Love wins. That's just another form of legalism. Before someone said, this is what the scriptures, you got to believe in this, 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 the virgin birth, this, this, you got to believe in Trinity, you got to believe in this and that. Now, I'm telling you, doctrine is important. But doctrine is not the full expression of what Christianity is. But for someone to come to you and say, you know what Christianity is? And they gave you 20 doctrinal points and said, this is what Christianity is. And they went through a list of those things. I would say, that's not really what Christianity is. Christianity is, isn't making sure that you can argue these 20 doctrinal points. It's not that you can say the Nicene Creed. Whether you agree with it or not, that is not the full extent of what Christianity is. Christ did not go to the cross so that you could memorize the Nicene Creed. At the same level, Christianity isn't so you could just say love wins. A simpler creed. It's Christianity is not, at least in my opinion, and by the way, you're going to get it. Well, Doug, this is your own form of legalism. I, I get the concept, but this to me, when I look at Scripture, and you're going to get my biases here, a sign that we're healthy, a sign that we're growing, is we're not growing in legalism. We're growing in relationship. And for me, relationship is very mysterious. It's relational. That for me, for Christianity to work, it needs to work in this, that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave and that we serve a resurrected Savior. And our resurrected Savior did not leave us as orphans, but he came to us through the Holy Spirit and that now we have relationship with God through the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit, who was with the disciples as Christ Jesus walked with the disciples, is now in us. And so, we are in Christ and Christ is in us and that we commune with God on a daily basis. So for me to assess last year and this year, it's not that I have a new set of rules and laws or that I can articulate my doctrine better, but it's am I growing in my intimacy with God? Am I living a doctrinal life or am I living a relational life? Now, I believe that relational life will also produce good doctrine. But doctrine without relationship is meaningless, in my opinion, because I really don't want this existence to rest upon that we all have to agree upon these 10 points or these 20 points, this one point. And I've found this. I've found people who've gone, gone from extreme legalistic environments who now just say love wins, and then I look at their life and they don't pray much. They don't go to church much. You say, well, church doesn't matter. Okay, fine. But when they're not going to church, they're not communing with other Christians in a way where they're hearing the voice of God. They're just living like everybody else. And that matters to me. I know this sounds really judgy. I know. But it matters to me that a good time for them is getting drunk on a Friday and hanging out and just whatever. 
that I know that they don't hear God's voice clearer. The intimacy with God, the closeness of God. They got more, they got different points. They got less points. Maybe they, maybe they even have more peace with their points and their theology. But I don't hear relational language, at least with God. In fact, God becomes more distant or God becomes more nebulous, and I hear a lot more about them. I hear about them and their causes and their crusades and, and their people. And, but God is like, and then God becomes so distant that God's just kind of this generic life force. And it's kind of eventually you realize where this is going. It's like, well, so God is just kind of love, but he's not even like, you know, well, you know, maybe Jesus Maybe not, maybe whatever. You know what's going to happen next generation? The kids are going to be like, why do we need the Bible to anchor this love wins? We don't need the Bible. I don't need your laws. I can make my own laws. See, the thing with legalism, legalism doesn't translate because it's just laws. You introduce someone to a law, they're like, well, that's just a law. But relationship translates because we confront God. To me, I want to work for facilitating environments where people confront the resurrected presence of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus isn't alive and real, then then none of this matters. And that's what we're confronting in our existential crises as the church declines and as the world seems to go wayward. Is God alive or real? And if he isn't, well, then this is just meaningless. And I certainly wouldn't waste my time reading a Bible and living my life based on the Bible if you don't believe in a God who speaks. I just wouldn't. So that issue to me, when I think about this, are you growing in relationship? Because I don't really care about your theology if your theology, well, I do care about it. In fact, I'm not attracted to your theology if it distances you from God and from his body, especially as a Christian. If as a Christian, you are spending less time with the body of Christ, then I have a problem with your theology because the Bible is clear that when we become members of the body of Christ, We will gather with Christ's body. Abraham, God came to Abraham to make him into a people that will bless the rest of the people on the face of the earth. So the sign that you're growing in relationship with God is you begin to form the people of God and and abide with the people of God and care about the people of God for the purpose of blessing others. And if your pristine theology is making you more and more of an isolate, and less concerned about the people of God, and less concerned about blessing others as an extension of the people of God, then that's a non-relational gospel. I just don't want it. So in that context, assessment, the first one, energy, yes, quality, no. Second, relationship with God and his body versus legalism, rules, and regulations. Legalism. Legalism can come in all kinds of forms. And I know when I talk, you're like, Doug, you know, Doug, you can be legalistic. And you know what I say to that? You're right. You're right, I can be legalistic. And that's why for me, I must continually go before the Lord and seek his face. That's why I must pray in the spirit and abide where I listen for the voice of God and 
and spend time where I'm just talking with him and letting him speak to me and where through the spirit we begin to just pray and talk with each other and I listen for the voice of God. And I don't just listen for the voice of God for my questions and my problems, but I just listen and I look with eyes intently open to speak to me, Jesus. And I don't just do it on Sundays. I don't just do it in crises, but I do it every day, every hour. Am I growing in that kind of intimacy where I'm listening for the voice of God and looking for the voice of God? Am I listening for the voice of God in my marriage? Am I listening for the voice of God in my children? Am I facilitating a climate where people see and sense and hear and know the voice of God? Am I known as someone who facilitates a climate of intimacy? When I started in a ministry, I felt like God gave me this picture that my job would be at some level to do crowd control. And what I mean by this is so often we think the goal of ministry is to have eloquent words and eloquent thoughts. And I thought about for the disciples that often the disciples really just did crowd control, that Jesus would come into a town and the people would just swarm around Jesus and the disciples would push people out of the way so that Jesus could come into the marketplace or Jesus could come into a house or Jesus could come into the room, that the disciples would just push through the crowds to make room for Jesus. And that's been an image that I've always felt is for me and for others, that it's my job to make room for the presence of Jesus. Are you making room for the presence of Jesus? Or are you making room for laws and rules and regulations? Let's just even do that now. Lord, Lord, I just, I just pray right now that you could open our ears to hear you speak. Lord, I ask you'd help us if we're just caught with one law to another law, one rule to another rule. Would you help us to grow in intimacy? In Jesus' name. I know with the podcast, what I should do is we should just spend some time in silence waiting for God to speak. But if I do that on the podcast, it's a little awkward in that silence. So maybe you just need to spend some time, you pause it right here, and just let God speak. Maybe just spend some time meditating. Maybe go for a walk. Do something to let God speak. That alone, if we could grow in hearing the voice of God, we would do well. Relationship, not legalism. Third, some of you are going, Doug, you're spending so much time. If you go through all four points, it's going to be an eight-hour podcast. No, I, I think I'll go shorter. But a third way just to assess our lives, to assess that, to me, that we're, we're growing in kingdom dynamics is to look at, have we become a person of words or a person of the Spirit? How's the Spirit of our dialogue? And I would use the Spirit as the Holy Spirit, and I'd also use the Spirit as in the attitude of our dialogue. What is the Spirit of our dialogue? Especially this last year, with the rise of, of the Trump uh, empire, with the rise of an expression of politics that has been, to me, some of the most filthy expressions of humanity I've ever seen, as far as attitude. The scripture's really clear about our attitude. You just 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 do this. You could Google, don't Google. Uh, Google won't help you, but go to your Bible app and do a word study on love or do a word study on kindness or look up the fruit of the Spirit and uh, just see what the fruit of the Spirit is like and then see how our world leaders are expressing themselves in the U.S., and then see how the church has actually, some circles of the church, have been praising 
people or supporting people that have no expression of the fruit of the Spirit. None. That's just an anti-Christ direction. Nothing good will come from that. The only thing that shows is that we have a gospel that some people are preaching that has removed itself from the foundation of Jesus Christ. If you can preach a gospel that doesn't have the fruit of the Spirit accompanying it, then that is an antichrist gospel. It just is. If you can literally preach Christ without the fruit of the Spirit in your preaching, then you found a way to preach an antichrist gospel. And and to me, I'm just I'm not going to back down on this. That's antichrist. That's demonic. It's a demonic foothold. And you can say, well, you know, the gospel is true and the, the points are true. And just because we're not Christ-like and just because we don't have the fruit of the Spirit in our proclamation, uh, that's okay as long as we have a Christ-like gospel. No, that's not how it works. If you preach the truth without love, it's no longer the truth. It, it, it's, it's, just, it's this simple. If I, if I were to preach the gospel, and this has happened in homes, Let's say I preach the gospel to my children and I beat them every night. I'm sorry to use this harsh term, but if I abuse my children, I preach the gospel and I abuse them. Does that make me a righteous man? Am I a righteous man if I, like my doctrine, I preached, it was right. Everything I said was right. I said a right gospel. And then after I said the right gospel, I beat my children. Would you call me a righteous man? Would you say that that would help my children understand the gospel? What would it actually do? It would actually make it almost impossible for my children to accept the gospel, right? What would that be if I had an antichrist spirit that accompanied the gospel? That would make me an enemy of the gospel, wouldn't it? The same thing is happening in our cultural discourse. When we promote men or women or leaders who say gospel things but have an antichrist spirit, it's the same thing. They're not doing the work of the kingdom. They're doing the work of Satan. It's the same thing. It's on the same continuum. So it's our job to come in clearly and not just coddle it and say, well, as long as they say good things, it's okay. If you came in and said, well, as long as Doug said the gospel to his kids, it's okay that he beats his kids. No, that would, you'd be like, no. There's, in fact, it's worse. It would have been better if he had been a pagan. Then it'd be you know you understand that right? It would be better for kids to be raised by a pagan and be harmed than to be raised by someone who said Christian things and harmed them. Because I am worse. I've confused it. I've made it worse. It'd be better for them to be raised by someone who said I hate God and I hate you than someone who said I love God and was hateful to my kids. So our attitude is not just a little thing; it's a big thing. It matters greatly. And all you have to do is search the scriptures to see that our attitude and the spirit of our communication is not a little thing. It's huge. It's a sign that we've been brought from death to life, how we love our brothers. If you just search fruit of the spirit and you look at what the fruit of the spirit is and how it contrasts the works of the flesh, you'll find that we live in a world that is living contrary to the kingdom of God. If you want to assess your life, are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit, are you growing in the works of the flesh? What are you using your freedom for? The works of the flesh 
are to the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says this in Galatians 5.16. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We're not talking about like even sexual desires. The, the flesh is just what I desire in my own flesh, my senses, my, what I taste, what I touch, what I smell, what I feel. Just me in the flesh, outside of God's leading. That's what the flesh is. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not desire the, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, here's the works of the flesh. He says the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Well, there's a lot of people talking about that. You know the reason America's falling apart? Sexual immorality. But look what else he puts in here. Impurity sensuality. You know what sensuality is? Just living by the senses. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions. The same people who talk about sexual immorality are some of the most strife-filled, jealous-filled, fits of anger, rivalry, enmity, dissension people I've ever met. The same people who say, you know why America's falling apart? You know why we need to isolate from this culture? You know why why things are, you know why you need to come to our church and abandon all these other things? Because of the sexual immorality in this culture. The rest of the things on this list, they are actually replicating in their homes, in their families, in their marriages, in their churches, in the world. And Paul says these are all the same. They're all the same. Sexual immorality, drunkenness, and orgies are the same as fits of anger. Jealousy, strife, and enmity, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions, and envy. It says they're all the same. They're all the same. That's not what we were called to. And someone says, you know why I'm just so angry all the time? It's because of this sexual immorality. I'm sorry, I just, you know, these fits of anger, they just come because I'm morally just. No, those fits of anger come because you're living according to the flesh, and you've not submitted to the kingdom of God and the fruit of the Spirit. And you're no different than the person who's engaged in sexual immorality. You're no different. You're no different than the person who's engaged in orgies with your strife and your dissensions and your fits of anger. You're no different. You're not one step different. You're not one more righteous. You're not. America is not declining anymore because of sexual immorality as it is because of your fits of anger and your dissension and your divisiveness. Paul goes on. He says, in contrast to, to this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Basically, if you have the Spirit of God in you, you're going to be expressing your life in these ways. You want to see a man of God, a woman of God? You see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You don't see gentleness, you don't see a man or woman of God. If you don't see faithfulness and kindness and patience and joy and peace, you're not seeing someone who's submitted to the kingdom of God. And here's the deal, a lot of us don't have patience, we don't have kindness, we don't have gentleness, but we repent and we conform ourselves to the image of Christ and we admit to the fact that our goal is for those fruits to rise up in us. We don't defend the fact that we aren't kind. Literally this year, I've seen Christian leaders belittle the concept of kindness. Do a word study on kindness. You want to be a man, be kind. 
And I understand that's not a gender issue, but I'm just, you know, we got to be more menly. We got to have a better definition of masculinity, the fruit of the spirit. What a, what a, oh man, I want to say stupid. I want to say it so badly. What a crazy world we live in where we think we need some other definition for masculinity or femininity that doesn't include the fruit of the spirit. What a crazy concept, living according to the flesh versus according to the spirit. Last way, quickly, you want to assess your life? Are you listening to the voice of Jesus? Jesus said this, my sheep know my voice. They listen to me when I speak. That's a paraphrase. It's in John. (laughs) They know me. They hear my voice. They follow me. Are you following his voice? Do you know his voice? Are you listening? Hey, I appreciate you listening to me. I want to challenge you in this. Are you giving your best energy to the kingdom of God? Are you excited for the kingdom of God? You're not going to do it perfect. We're just little kids. We're going to fail. But can you say to daddy, father, I'm doing my best. I'm just, I'm trying my best. And he can say, hey, great job. Great job. I'm going to put it on the refrigerator. I love your art. It's so beautiful, Doug. Thanks for doing it. Wonderful. Can you just celebrate that you're giving your best energy to God? Are you giving your best energy? Are you growing in a relationship where you're spending time with your daddy? Are you spending time with your parent? Are you spending time with God? Are you spending time with him? Can you say, yeah, this is a year where we're just spending time together and, and, and there's an intimacy growing in my relationship with God? How's your heart? How's your attitude? Are you growing in kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control? And are, and are you listening so that you can do the work of the kingdom? You know his voice. And you distinguish his voice from the rest of the crowd. I so much appreciate you listening. Thank you so much. Hey, if you'd like to pick up my new book, The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor, you can go to my website, fairlyspiritual.org, to find more information, or just pick it up at amazon.com. This music is written by my brother, Dan Bursch. You can find this and several of his albums on iTunes. All right, make room for the Lord. He knows you by name. I will see you next time. They say that I cannot what you've called me to it is not possible unattainable i will never see it through but you've spoken My dreams with you